Father, we thank you. We take these moments together to thank you and praise you uh, for who you are in our lives and for these chapters that we are able to study, this amazing book, the book of Acts. And we pray particularly for this chapter that you would um, give us very special um, truths and promises and rhemas in our own hearts as we, as we go through these verses in this chapter together. Bless us, quicken us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, welcome everyone. We are, as you know, we've been having a wonderful journey through the book of Acts. If you haven't been able to be at all the classes, it doesn't matter. We frame this nicely for tonight. The classes are online. If you want to look at them at your leisure, you can catch up. Um, so we've looked at, uh, of course, the beginning of Acts with the birth of the church, the development of the church, the organization of the church, the spreading of the gospel going out from Jerusalem, and particularly kicking off in Acts 13 with Paul's missionary journeys. We looked at the first missionary journey, chapters 13 and 14, the all-important Jerusalem Council defining what is the gospel in chapter 15, his second journey in Acts 17, 16, 17, and 18, and then we've looked at the third journey, which is different from the first two. In the first two, we'll, we'll remember that Paul um, went to new places, of course, on the second journey, he revisited some of the places, but they also went on to Europe. So both of those journeys were had a pioneering element in the sense that Paul was going to places that they'd never been to before, planting churches, um, going to previously, um, going to new, new areas. In the third missionary journey, one distinction is he's really just revisiting the same places where he's planted churches, although many years go by, and you can imagine the church is growing. Many of those people wouldn't have met him before, so it's still a fresh crop of Christians in each place. But in Acts 18.23, when the third missionary journey began, he said after he had spent some time there, he departed, and there being Antioch, where he always started at the beginning and end of a journey, he departed and went over the region of Galatia, Phrygia, in order, strengthening the disciples, in order. So he pretty much traced his steps from previous um, times. And on the third journey, it's mainly focused in Asia. And when we say Asia, we mean Asia Minor, that large part of Turkey today, um, particularly in Ephesus. <clears throat> we remember in the last chapter we studied last week, that's all in Ephesus 19, and he spent three years there. So if you want, you can follow along in your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 20. Some of the verses that I have up, not all of them. It's easier to follow in your Bible. So Acts 20 verse 1 says, After the uproar had ceased. Now this connects to Ephesus. Remember, they ended with a riot, didn't it? Um, there was a hot, in a complete uproar, the... the uh, um, they were able to dispel that, but then Paul moves on here. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself and embraced them. And this is beautiful, isn't it? This is, shows the relationship, the love, the heart that Paul had uh, for the church, for fellow believers, but particularly for the churches that he'd planted and pastored. Um, so much more than just an occupation, but a real vocation, which should be in the heart 
of every pastor. God forbid it's just a job, but something that God has called you to do. Philippians 4.1, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, which he had the most perhaps intimate of relationships with, he says, my brethren, dearly beloved, longed for, my joy, my crown. These are wonderful words, deep words of the heart. And this is the type of relationship Paul had with the churches. And it says, after the uproar had ceased, he called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and then departed to go to Macedonia. So mainly in Ephesus. And then afterwards, from Ephesus, they decide to go up to Macedonia. This may ring a bell for us, because remember back in Acts 16, um, when they had only been in Asia Minor, God calls them to go over to Europe. And they go, they're in Troas when Paul gets the Macedonian vision and they first of all go over to Europe and they land in Philippi. So this is where Paul's going. He's going to Philippi. Remember this region. Berea is there. Thessalonica is there. Um, verse 2. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. And of course we know Greece particularly would have been, Corinth would have been the hub uh, where he spent 18 months. That's back in uh, Acts 18. So we know that the purpose of this journey, as was said in 1823, was to encourage, to strengthen the brethren, to build up the churches, perhaps to appoint elders and teach certain doctrines, etc. But there was another reason, and that reason was he was also taking up an offering and he was doing that through the churches in Macedonia and in Corinth. He was gathering an offering that he would take back to the church in Jerusalem, which was known to be quite a poor, needy, needy church. So in Galatians 2.10, um, and this is referring back to the Jerusalem council, he says, if there's one thing we would ask Paul, that they desired only we should remember the poor, the very thing also I was eager to do. So, He's going through Macedonia, coming down to Greece. He's building up the churches. He's also collecting money for the poor. And he comes to Corinth. And again, if we had a quick look at that map. So here we are in, in Troas. This is a, a, a Turkey today going over to, to this region of Europe, down to Greece. And he's in, uh, he's in Corinth. When he wrote to the Corinthians, I'll read you a few verses in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so must you also do. On the first day of the week, which is Sunday, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, which we just looked up at the map, and it may be that when I will remain, may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church beforehand, says, listen, I'm going to pass through Macedonia, I'm going to be collecting money from the, for this region, you prepare the same, and when I come I'll collect the money, perhaps send it to Jerusalem, or even I'll take it, take it myself. So, in verse 3 of Acts, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I missed that verse. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. In verse 8, I will tarry in Ephesus until 
Pentecost. So that was his plan. But he's telling them from Ephesus, which is where he wrote Corinthians, that I'm going to be coming to you. And he stays in Corinth for three months, back in Acts 20, verse 3. He stayed there for uh, three months in Corinth. And here he wrote one of the most famous of the epistles. He wrote the book of Romans. Imagine, that was quite a fruitful time in Corinth. He writes this incredible book. And it says, And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So I go back to that map. So he's in Corinth. He's about to re- re- go, go across this way by ship, but there was some kind of plot against him by the Jews. So he says instead, he goes back up this way through Macedonia, which is why these arrows on the map double back on themselves. He takes the same, same route. So back in Acts 20 and verse 4, you'll notice he picks up some team members on the way. You can see their names there, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus. Secundus was never late for a meeting, he's always on time. Um, Gaius, Timothy is a name that we should recognize, of course. Uh, Tychicus and Trophimus. And you'll notice that they're all from different areas. Sopater from Berea, um, from Thessalonica, from Derby. Um, and from other parts in Asia. And part of the reasoning for that, it seems, that Paul wanted them to accompany him back to Jerusalem with the offering from the Jerusalem church, not only with the money, but with representatives from those Gentile churches. And that would serve well to try and bridge the cultural gap between the Jewish mentality and the Gentile mentality. So there was always always seemed a little bit of... Um, Distance, we could say, in terms in terms of that, it took many many years for that to to come to grips with that. So he picks up these team members on the way. He tells us in verse five, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So these men, he picks them up, um, and you'll notice in verse. Um, you'll notice here in verse five, it says, "These men going ahead waited for us." What's unusual about that word? Huh? It's plural, but he's he's talking... The writer is now included. It goes from them to us. And who's writing? Luke, right? So this tells us that Luke also has joined them on the journey. It's very subtle. Luke doesn't blow the trumpet when he comes back onto the scene. And then I, Luke, arrive. No, he just (laughs) subtly changes. And then we... And um, remember, the last time we saw Luke was when he was left in Philippi some seven years before. Luke, as far as we know, was pastoring in Philippi. And now as they go backwards on the uh, third journey here, he picks up Luke. They go to Troas and they meet these other seven guys that have already gone on before them. So... Um, you'll also notice that the narrative begins to get a little bit more detailed, whereas there's been a few sweeping statements. We covered this region. Now Luke is back on board, and he's the, he's the narrator. He's the historian. So the record picks up a, little, a few more details. It's interesting. So verse 6, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. So that's Passover. Um, you remember before he said he wanted to get back to Jerusalem for Passover. Because of the plot of the Jews, they didn't make it back. So they ended up staying 
here for Passover. Now his goal is just to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, which is about 50 days, about 50 days later. So, um, and it says, and in five days we joined them at Troas, um, where we stayed for seven days. And I'm sure that was a wonderful time. We could just pause and imagine what that would mean. These, these group of precious men representing these different areas, all with amazing testimonies to tell. Timothy, how did you become a Christian? Oh, it was on Paul's second missionary, first missionary journey. And they'd tell their stories, and it would be wonderful fellowship. And they were waiting for him at Troas, and sure enough, uh, he shows up. Verse 7 tells us, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. And this is the first mention in the New Testament that the church met together on a Sunday, the first day of the week. And the breaking of bread here would refer to the Lord's Supper. Um, wouldn't have been the only day they met, for sure. Acts 2 tells us they met daily. They met often, just as we do. We, you know, Many of us, we see each other through the week, perhaps, if, if, we're, if it's possible. But, of course, Sunday was the wonderful time when everyone would gather and it would be rejoicing and the breaking of the bread was there. And Paul is ready to depart the next day and spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is verse uh, 7. So we don't know when the message began, but it says he went until midnight. That's quite a long message. And and I was thinking, if it's okay with you... uh, um, So he went all the way until midnight. Imagine, hours and hours, because this was a a, a special, unique time. He wasn't sure if he would see these believers in Troas again. So they spend a long time there, preaching until midnight. You think that's long until midnight. If you read ahead a few verses, they have a break, and then he continues preaching until the break of day. So they actually end up going all night. And verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And the reason that's mentioned is, of course, because they were oil lamps. They would be burning up oxygen, and it was probably hot and stuffy in that room. The oxygen's thinning out. And people are kind of getting a bit tired because it's been long. It's the Apostle Paul. But even so, we're only human. And it tells us in verse 9, In a window sat a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continues speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And of course, this is one of those curious little stories in the narrative and this is what happened on the third floor. He's listening and he's fighting the head bobbing. And he's, no, no, I'm listening. You know, you know. And all of a sudden it says he's overcome with the sleep. He can't fight it anymore. He's sitting on the window ledge and he falls out. That would have uh, interrupted Paul's preaching for sure. Horrific. He falls out. Not only falls, but when they go down to see, they find that he is dead. Verse 10, but Paul went down, fell on him, embraced him. Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. This is an Old Testament-style resurrection, that, that he comes back from the dead. Now, this could serve as a warning not to fall asleep in church. Um, but be careful, because there's no apostles left today. So if you, if, you, if you end up dying because of it, you might not be raised from the dead. So be careful with that. Verse 11, now when he had come up, he broke bread and eaten and taken a long while, even till daybreak, and then he departed. So 
they continue to share about Christ and miracles and the revivals and the missions trips and everything until the, the sun came up. And they brought the young man alive and they were not a little comforted. Or in other words, they were incredibly comforted. Imagine that story. They would have been telling that in Troas for years to come. Eutychus probably came a, became a little bit of a celebrity. They probably teased him every now and then, say, Eutychus, don't, no falling asleep now, and things like that. But, but what a story that was. Verse 13 tells us, we'll look back to the map here, that they went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. So they're in Troas, and they're going to sail around the, the coast here to Assos. They're intending to take Paul on board, for he had given orders that he would go on foot. So for some reason, Paul says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go across the land. I'm going to walk it. It's about a 20-mile walk. Paul says, you take the ship, and I'll meet you in Assos. Now, the reasons for that may have been it would have given opportunity for some of the people in Troas to perhaps accompany on, on part of the journey, get some extra time with him. Um, but, but most likely, it's Paul's just thinking, I need some time alone. I need to be with the Lord. I need to quiet my heart. I need to hear from God or whatever it might be. But nevertheless, he goes alone and he meets them, verse 14, in Assos. And then they take him aboard and they come to Mytilene. And so there's a quick sketch of the about 20 miles walk. They went round and they met him in Assos. And we sail from there, verse 15, and the next day we, day we came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. So if you look, they're just dotting down the coast here, probably staying a night in each, on each island or in each place. Uh, for Paul had decided, verse 16, to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, in other words, when they, when they set sail here, there they could have been a ship that they could have got on that would have stopped in Ephesus. But Paul said, no, let's get this shop, ship. I want to pass by Ephesus. I know if I, if I stop in Ephesus, I'm not going to make it back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So we'll, we'll stop here in Miletus. And verse 27, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he looks at this, Paul getting the sense that that this is going to be the last time he's going to see them. Um, He, from Miletus, he calls the elders from Ephesus. Now let's remember Ephesus, remember what happened there. He was there three years, two years teaching in the Bible school in the house of Tyrannus. Or it said all of Asia heard the word of God. Remember, incredible revivals and house churches started and a lot was happening. So we don't know how many elders. Uh, these are spiritual leaders in the churches that he'd started. But nevertheless, he sent for them and they gathered together for this very special last meeting. And we will hear the words from the Apostle Paul's heart. His final charge, if you like, is he's handing the bat onto them. He's saying, I'm leaving. These are my last words. I'm on my way out. Everything I've taught you, this is the time. You are the leaders now. You are the elders. You lead the church. So it's quite an insightful passage. 
it's almost like a bonus epistle. There are three main uh, letters, I think. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Okay, we'll get there in a minute. So he sends for these elders and from, from Miletus, and they come for this special last meeting. Now, you'll notice the word elders there in verse 17, the Greek word presbuteros, and that's a term that refers to a man who has a level of maturity, spiritual maturity. doesn't necessarily mean he's an old man, although hopefully wisdom and maturity comes with years, but not necessarily. Timothy was an example of that. He was a younger pastor. Um, but presbuteros refers to the maturity. In verse 28 of this chapter, the term overseer or Episcopos is used, and that refers to oversight or spiritual authority. And then in that same verse, the term shepherd, shepherd the feet, or sh- shepherd the sheep, or feed the sheep, is poimen, translated in Ephesians 4.11 as pastor. And that speaks of spiritual responsibility, what he would do in terms of feeding the flock, leading the flock, covering, protecting if need be, correcting if need be. So these three terms are referring to the same person, same office, same role. They are actually used interchangeably. In the English, you might see pastor, elder, overseer, or bishop. But no one calls me bishop apart from Richard. No one else is allowed. That's only Richard's. So, so he's meeting with the elders. So these are men of spiritual maturity, spiritual authority, spiritual responsibility. And it's a sobering responsibility. There is no, this is no marginal issue. Um, we as believers, Bible taught, spirit taught in the body of Christ, we understand the incredible onus that is in this particular calling and role. You are, you are overseeing the church of God. And in verse 28 of this chapter, it says the, the church that God purchased with his own blood to add the weight of responsibility and stewardship. So anyone who would respond to such a calling does so with a sense that this is, this is serious with the Lord. It's not just, oh, sure, why not? It's something that's very uh, serious in the heart. And, um, of course, spiritual leadership in the church is very different from leadership in the world. Um, in different expressions of that, in the business world or whatever it is in the world, when you think about leadership, it may be defined by how many people you are over or how many servants you have under you, that type of thing. But in the church, it's how many people you are serving. It's very different. A servant leader type of mentality is is, uh, with the church. And as the apostles in the first century begin to die off, John being the last at the end of the first century, it seems to be that the abiding government after the apostles are the elders in the church. So, for example, in Acts 15.5, you begin to see them mentioned side by side. To Jerusalem, welcomed by the church, by the apostles and elders. So we know the apostles, the twelve, who had the Second uh, Corinthians twelve twelve had the gifts and signs of an apostle, were able to do miracles and wonders, etc. As they were passing off the scene, we call it the apostolic age, um, going in, continuing into the church age. We could see that the elders were now being appointed as spiritual leaders over the churches. We see them side by side. Also, Acts sixteen four, 
they delivered to them the decrees to keep, and this is referring back to the Jerusalem Council, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So remaining form of church government under the framework of the elders. Sorry, that's my note. Paul and Barnabas appointing elders in each church. So, uh, three key messages that Paul speaks in Acts. We remember to the Jews in Antioch, that's his first recorded message. To the Gentiles in Athens, that we studied, that was to the, uh, the message of the unknown God, remember? And this one is unique because this message is to believers. Not just believers, but to leaders of the church. So, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful passage we have. And let's jump in, Acts 20, verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to you, um, I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Now, why did he start like that? He's got the elders gathered, and he says, Listen, you know how I've always been among you. You know about my ministry. It could be that um, he's addressing something that has been said about him. He's perhaps, in some of his epistles, he was forced to defend his apostleship or speak about his ministry. Because there would always be accusations going around about Paul. Was he genuine? Was he in it for the money? That type of thing. And that will always be uh, a potential undercurrent in any particular church. It's good to know for us because it helps us be prepared in warfare. Because if the devil would love to split a church... Um, he'll use words. He'll use um, undiscerning people to listen and to echo the same thing. And before you know it, you've got, you've got division in the church. Paul had a sense that that was coming. He will speak of wolves that will come into the church. So he reminds them about their history together, his ministry. He had integrity and faithfulness. And this passage that follows will serve these men for their own instruction, and uh, if you like, as a model for their own ministry. And there's four points he makes. He speaks about the ministry in terms of how it relates to the Lord, how it relates to the church, how it relates to the lost, and how it relates to himself. So the first point, Paul saw his ministry as it relates to the Lord, or as serving Christ, in verse 19, I don't have it there, but it says this, Serving the Lord with all humility. That's the first thing he mentions as he reflects on his ministry. All of the years of church planting and troubles and trials and preaching and being in jail and all the rest of it. He says this, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So if you're serving the Lord with all humility, that's going to help you be humble before men. Secondly, how the ministry relates to people. Verse 20, he says, how I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, nothing that was helpful to you. That Paul had a sense in his calling and his responsibility to be teaching and preaching and explaining the word of God. This is the same verb used in verse 27 where, he, where it says, I have not shunned from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Or in other words, I have not avoided or failed to do this. In other words, he's saying, I have um, fulfilled my 
responsibility. I have kept nothing back from you. And I'm sure, of course, there was the temptation to do that, as would be in any preacher or pastor's life. There are certain subjects and things that you could avoid that would make your life a lot easier. Um, you don't have to get into it. You could skip past it. But that wouldn't be being a good steward. Paul says preaching the whole counsel of God, not just staying on certain themes. That's why we enjoy expositional teaching and preaching, because we're going through the Bible, we're going through books, through passages. And therefore, long term, we will be exposed to the whole counsel of God. And that's what Paul was referring to here. He said, I didn't hold back, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So I taught you the whole council. How did I do that? I did that publicly. I did that at the services. I did that in large groups. I did that in small groups. I did that in house to house. I did it in classes, in home studies, wherever I, wherever I, I was, I, I would do it. That's what he's saying. So, and the third point in the ministry, so first relating to God, then to uh, the church, and then relating to the lost, verse 21, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as we've mentioned, repentance refers to changing of mind. And then he says, repenting to believe in the true God, of course, and then faith in Christ as the Savior, in, in essence, presenting the gospel. And then lastly, he views the ministry in relationship to himself, particularly the price that it will cost him. Um, we can't help when we study the life of Paul to recognize the incredible price that he, uh, that he paid. Um, verse 22, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Now, those around Paul... Perhaps wondering, well, Paul, you, you want to go to Jerusalem? Oh, why do you want to go? Well, I want to make Pentecost. Oh, okay. But there was something much deeper happening. Paul says here, I was bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, knowing the things that would happen to me there. For the Holy Spirit, verse 23, testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So we'll see that when Paul finally gets to Jerusalem, he's, uh, he's arrested and there's a whole turning point now as he starts to head to Rome. And Paul somehow knew that that was coming, for the Holy Spirit had shared that with him. Verse 24, or a famous verse in the passage, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace. So he knows the price and he says, I was prepared to pay it. I'm still prepared to pay it so that I will finish my race with joy. Second Timothy 4.7, which were among the last words that he wrote just before he's executed. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then in verse 25, and indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. This would have been quite hard news for them. He's not just saying, oh, see you next time. He's saying, you will not see my face again. And therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. We referred to this before, remember? It seems to be alluding to Ezekiel 33. 
where it says, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. It's quite graphic language to say that there is a responsibility of the watchman of a city. He has the trumpet in his hand and he's up at the tower and he sees the enemy coming. And if he doesn't warn the people, he will be held responsible. And Paul takes that language and he says, I am, I am, uh, how does he say it? I am free from the blood of all men. In other words, I fulfilled my responsibility. I, I, I gave my all. I didn't keep anything back from you that was profitable. I taught you the whole counsel of God. I was with you day and night teaching the kingdom of God. So, in verse 28. Verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In verse 28, therefore, so, so, so now he's, this is a turning point. He, he points to what he's done, reflects on his ministry, and now it's the charge before he steps out the door. Now he says, therefore, over to you guys, verse 28, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock. Now notice the first thing. If you think about the stewardship of an elder, spiritual leader in a church, the first thing that will be said to him is take heed to yourself. Before you have a ministry to anyone else, you need to make sure you're receiving a ministry, that you are right with God, that you are encouraged, that you are spirit-filled. Have Guard your heart, Proverbs 6.23, because, because if, you, if you stumble, you lose so much, and others, others lose also. So take heed to yourself. Be a steward in your own relationship before you help others. A little bit like the gas mask. Take care of yourself and then take care of those who are with you. Or as he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you. Isn't that something? This is why you have to take heed to yourself, Timothy. Because if you do that, you don't only save yourself, but those who hear you. And then it says, and to all the flock. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice the word all there. To all the flock, not just the flock generally, but all the flock, each one, each person, you, you, are an, you have been made overseers to them to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. By the way, that's a great verse for the deity of Christ, that God purchased the church with his own blood, that Jesus, who shed his blood, was God, which his blood purchased the church. Anyway, um, so then he goes on, not only feeding them, verse 29, but he goes on to watch and to warn So verse 29, he goes, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that would be quite something that would to take in a pastor's heart or in the Apostle Paul's heart. He's leaving Ephesus, these precious men, some of them perhaps young men coming up in the ministry, representing these churches. And in his heart, he has a sense. He knows that it's very possible, very common that when he leaves, wolves will come into the church. It's a graphic picture, isn't it? A flock of sheep, little lambs, and wolves coming in with the intent to destroy the flock. 
Sometimes a wolf coming into the church might be very obvious. They're spouting some doctrine which we can hear. That, oh, that's, I haven't been taught that before. And it's very obvious. Sometimes it's very subtle. And we need to be discerning. It's, Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So one, you can identify it. He's a wolf. It's written right there. It's obvious. But others are wolves in sheep clothing. It's not so obvious. And then he goes on to say this, which must have been quite shocking for any of the men that were there in verse 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Wow. They're probably you know, looking, over, looking at each other. I don't know. Am I included in that group? So remember, he's not just speaking to a church, but to leaders. Some of you leaders, if you don't take heed to yourself, if you are not serving the Lord with humility, if you are not guarded in your heart, you could end up being someone who, who actually divides the church. Speaking perverse things, this is to twist or to change. Typically, it refers to doctrines, twisting, changing doctrines, but it could be, again, just the assassination of someone's character and sowing discord in the, in the church. Nevertheless, the purpose to draw away disciples. So he says, verse 31, Therefore, there, therefore, do I have it? Yeah, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every, everyone night and day with tears. In other words, listen, this isn't the first time I've told you this about what it means, what spiritual warfare is, what, what, what spiritual leadership is, what our calling is. It's not the first time, but this is the last time I'm telling you. And now it's over to you and you need to be guarded and careful. It's over to you now. You need to be discerning in your own heart from wolves that come in from the outside and even from may, may raise up in the church. So therefore, watch. And again, this is a, a responsibility of an elder or a pastor in a church. It's to be watchful. It means to be awake, to be discerning, to be alive, to be on guard. When a shepherd takes his sheep out, to the, he doesn't just take a nap. He's got to be watching for, for, for pitfalls and enemies, etc. And they did come, by the way, those wolves and those false teachers. Because we know Timothy became the pastor in Ephesus. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing in the context of Ephesus. These are the Ephesian leaders. Timothy was there in this group. Remember, he was among those seven. And Timothy would witness these false teachers coming in. If you read First and Second Timothy, you see Paul telling Timothy to stand true in the face of false teachers. Don't be intimidated. Preach the truth, etc., etc. So verse 32 so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he concludes by commending them to God and God's grace that is able to build them up. Imagine the words of Paul, the aged. He's on his way out. He's not going to see them again. He's going to go to Jerusalem and then his journey to Rome and he's gone. And he leaves them with this charge. Um, when you go to an ordination or an induction for a pastor, there tends to be a charge that someone will give. I've heard some sobering charges over the years where these men, 
their suits and they've got their certificate under their arm and then an elderly pastor will get up and he will give them a very healthy, challenging, sobering charge, reminding them of their responsibility in the areas of finance and doctrine and women, things like that, to have a guarded heart in the sense of stewardship, very, very healthy. This was like Paul's charge to this generation of men. And he commends them to God and to the word of his grace. In other words, he says, he says listen, if, if there's a few things I could leave you, a few tools in your toolbox, it will be this. For you not to be one who will rise up from among and cause division. For you to be a minister who loves the church, who lays down his life for the church. Oh, serve the Lord with all humility. And be, 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 be someone who is not only speaking about grace, but living by grace. Don't ever let it become theoretical, but let it be your experience every day. And be broken in, in God's call and God's presence. That he would allow you and call you to be leaders in the church. And he finishes verse 33 and on by saying, I've coveted no, no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided my necessities for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you may support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And again, what he's saying, he's trying to sow a spiritual principle in the hearts of these men. Listen, you're not in this for the money. This isn't just a job. This is a high, holy, sacred calling. And there's a spiritual secret that you must learn, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed than you to be in this for what you get out of it. If you do that, you lose. And so does everyone else. Proverbs 11.24 says, He who waters is watered himself. There's a great spiritual blessing that comes in the ministry to the minister. When he blesses, he finds a blessing. But the motive has to be right. First Peter 5, 2 and 3 is a very insightful passage on pastoring. It says, Peter's writing, remember when Peter denied the Lord, when he was restored in John 21, Jesus said to him, what? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Feed, you do that, Peter. And then so Peter, with that echoing in his mind, when he writes his epistle, First Peter 5, 1 says, feed the flock of God. And do it um, not lording it over the flock and not doing it for filthy lucre or for monetary gain, but be examples to the flock, feeding them. That's what Peter is saying and that's what Paul is echoing here. So when he said these things, verse 36 as we finish, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And that must have been quite a prayer meeting. And um, perhaps some of us have been at some of those farewells. I can think of different countries that you're never sure if you're going to go back there again. I can think of some of these times with joy and tears all mixed up. Or when we leave India, for example, uh, it, there's great joy and, but also brokenness in those times. And they all wept freely and they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And imagine that. Wow, Paul was here and he's gone. They, they watched the ship sail off into the distance. They look at each other and think, that's it. We're, we're into another chapter. Paul, the apostle, is not here. We have been charged. We are the leaders. And they went back to Ephesus 
to little home churches and and um, and continued in the ministry. And then chapter twenty one, um, we will see where Paul. We can see we followed him from Troas. He did this trip here. He came back to Troas with the team, journeyed all the way down here to Miletus. This was the meeting we just spoke about. Then he continues down this way and will come down to Jerusalem. And that's what we'll pick up. Uh, We'll finish that journey to Jerusalem in chapter 21 next week, where Paul knows that chains and bonds and troubles await him. And we'll see what happens. But he does get arrested and it's basically looking to Rome, uh, end up in Rome by the end of that. Okay, so Father, we thank you for this time in Acts 20 tonight. We thank you for these principles as we think about the, uh, the incredible uh, beauties and gifts and privileges in church life with the roles and the gifts and uh, portions uh, that you've given us in the, in the body of Christ in the church. We pray that we would all be good stewards of our gift, that we would all all serve serve you, Lord, with all humility, uh, day and night, God, that you would keep our hearts, you would help us not wander, uh, and to be guarded in our lives, in, with our words, with our actions, in our relationships, and oh, please, Lord, let us be used as a as a vessel of grace and mercy uh, in 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 the church and in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.